You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Well, there are two pictures that I want you to hold in your mind this morning from our reading. The first, from verse 16, is of a dry path making its way through the middle of a sea. Dry path through the middle of a sea. You'll recognize that imagery. I'm sure we'll come to that in a little while. And then the other picture is of a river making its way through a desert. And these two pictures are opposites of each other. They're like photo negatives of each other. And there's more. If you get into more detail, you'll see actually some of the symbolism uh, is reversed as well. So in the first picture, God's enemies, he talks about chariots and soldiers and those things. Verse 17 are destroyed. And in the second picture, verse 20, you have this picture of jackals uh, in the desert and owls in the desert. These are unclean animals which represent God's enemies worshipping God. So the first picture, you've got a dry path through the sea and you've got God's enemies being destroyed. In the second picture, you've got uh, water making a way in the desert and you've got God's enemies coming to worship him. Hold those two pictures in your mind. What is going on in this passage? Well, Isaiah has foretold already in his great prophecy that the people of Judah are going to be taken into captivity in Babylon. There was a king called Hezekiah who showed some Babylonian uh, envoys around all the treasuries that they had, showed them all the, uh, the riches of the, the nation, showed them around the temple and sort of to say, look how amazing we are. And surprise, surprise, they went away and said, oh, we th- think we might have a little bit of that. And he's foretold that Babylon are going to come and destroy uh, and take into captivity the people of, of Judah and, uh, and Jerusalem. So they've had this kind of negative message woven in with lots of hope. But here's a turning point in Isaiah when Isaiah begins to, having told them what bad stuff is going to happen, he then begins to talk about God returning them to the land. He's talking about God's bigger picture, that even though this terrible thing is going to happen, I'm going to do amazing things through that terrible stuff. So this is good. Good news. God has done the impossible in the past. He uh, led Israel uh, out of Egypt. This, that's the imagery of verse 16, verse 17. He led Israel out of Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He made a way where there was no way. He uh, led them through that path, through the ocean, through the sea, and he snuffed out Pharaoh's armies. I think that's a, just a lovely picture. You imagine a flame going out, and uh, like when a candle goes out and the smoke just goes up like that. That's kind of the, the imagery that he's, he's giving us to look at. Look, Pharaoh's armies were chasing the people of Israel out into the wilderness as they passed through the Red Sea. It fell in on them and extinguished them uh, like a flame being extinguished, and the smoke rises up. So this is good news, isn't it? This is hope in the middle of trial. In the middle of this, this uh, terrible thing that's coming, God is saying, I will rescue you like I rescued you in the past. That's good news. S- simple, isn't it? That God rescues us like he rescued us in the past. It's a good message. It's a good thing to, to take away with us. And I'm sure that in itself is, would be an incredible encouragement, both before and even during their time in Babylon. But then the prophecy takes a turn. There's a, there's a kind of hinge on which this, these verses uh, swing. 
that is quite surprising, especially if you are Jewish. If you're an Israelite and you hold on so dearly to these things that happened in the past, verse 18, having brought to mind uh, this crossing of the Red Sea and God's great salvation in the past, God says, forget the former things. That's quite a surprising thing to say, isn't it? Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Then we get this second image, this opposite picture. God isn't saying, forget the past, I'm going to change, I'm, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. But he's saying, I'm going to deliver you in a new way. I'm going to do something that is surprising to you. I'm going to do something that was more than what has gone before. And, and this surprising thing is that their salvation in the future out of Babylon is now not only for themselves. It's not just salvation from their enemies, but actually this salvation will begin to overflow to other nations. That's what the, the jackals and the owls represent. They, these unclean am, uh, animals represent the other nations. And then there's this kind of ambiguous verse 20 where it says, to, uh, they'll praise me um, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. Well, who is he talking about? Who are my people? Who are the people made for his praise? It's deliberately ambiguous. He's talking about the people of Israel, the people of Judah. He's also talking about these new people that perhaps they've not even thought about before, that they may be chosen uh, beyond the boundaries, the national boundaries of Israel. So this, this rescue from Babylon is the beginning of a chain of events that leads ultimately to the coming of the Messiah. The Gentiles coming to faith, the the knowledge of the living God pouring forth out of Israel into the whole world, which is the the age that we live in, the reality we live in. It's this amazing salvation, the age of the church. And these two pictures are precious because they show us the two sides of what it means for us to be saved. What happens to us when we become a Christian, when God saves us? We are saved from something Yes, and we are saved for something. We are saved from something and we are saved for something. These are both good news, aren't they? We are saved from something. I was thinking I had a lovely picture gifted to me of salvation from something yesterday. I went to a friend's wedding. The guy I was sitting next to had been to Kenya. And while he was there, they had visited on mission. While he was there, they visited the largest open-air rubbish dump in the whole of Africa. Somewhere in Kenya, I forget where he said it was. And he said it was just just as far as you could say, it was just an ocean of of waste. You know, just everything you could possibly imagine. And people live there and make a living trying to scavenge valuable things there. But there is a guy there who is called the king of the dump. (laughs) Which is actually quite close to the name Beelzebub, but anyway. uh, The king of the dump. (laughs) And funnily enough, they had to sort of they had to sort of acknowledge him. And then they addressed him. They had to call him Your Highness or Your Majesty. And when people would walk past him, they would sort of bow and acknowledge. And he was the guy that ran the whole operation. He lives there. It's it's like something out of a, a fairy story almost, isn't it? Really. So this is this guy. And I just remember thinking after that, I was thinking, yeah, that's just a wonderful picture of me without Jesus <laughs> presiding over my life, which is just this rubbish dump of stuff. Maybe a few scattered bits of good stuff here and there, I don't know. But if there was, it was buried under hundreds of tons of just mess and wasted time and selfishness and 
self-regard and all those things. Sitting there on my throne, expect everyone to look at that and go, oh, your majesty, you're so wonderful. <laughs> that was that was definitely the, the pride I had, even as a as a, a young person, thinking, you know, somehow I was due some recognition, you know, someone special or something like that. And, you know, that's who I'd be without, without Jesus. That's who we'd all be without Jesus, looking, presiding over our little kingdoms and expecting people to go, oh, you're really amazing. But God saves us from all that. And it's such a wonderful picture. I know this is a familiar thing, but there is a, there is a, a wonderful argument from the, or a picture from the lesser to the greater that God would remind us when he points us back to our salvation from the Red Sea. Because our salvation is more wonderful. The salvation that God offers is more wonderful than, he off, than the salvation he offered that he gave to the Israelites. They were saved from Pharaoh, who was some kind of ravenous psychopath by all accounts. I mean, just his absolute refusal to let the slaves go, his ramping up of the punishments as they asked to worship God. It's just awful. They were saved from Pharaoh, who was just maniacally bent on their destruction. And we were saved from Satan. You know, Pharaoh is there just so you can get a glimpse of the horror of the one who would who wants to destroy your soul. The one who is much worse, much stronger, much more cunning, much more bent on our destruction than Pharaoh ever was, is the devil. But to God, the devil is no more than Pharaoh. Easily squashed, easily defeated. God has snatched us through Christ out of the jaws of the enemy. That's the salvation he offers, isn't it? Do you feel that in your own life? Do you feel the gratitude for what God has done? He snatched us out of the enemy. He's taken us not out of literal, uh, physical slavery, making bricks and building buildings for a, a pagan nation, but he's taken us out of the slavery of sin, of serving ourselves and the whims of others, of being utterly lost and just doing like random stuff, not for God, but just for whoever asked of us. Internal pressures and psychological pressures and demands of people and manipulative. God has saved us out of slavery from sin, hasn't he? You feel that in your own life? I know some of you do. Because you told me about it. I know I do. He saved us from death. You know, the Israelites, that moment of panic was they, when they came to the Red Sea and the, the army was uh, chasing them as they, they got to the shores of the sea. And they, what are we going to do? And it was impossible. Impossible. God parted the Red Sea and made a way. Christ has made a way through death for us. And he extinguished the enemy's armies, the fire that was chasing them. And so he has extinguished the judgment that is against us for all the debt that we have racked up, for all the thoughts and the deeds, all the things we've done and left undone. They've chased us. Our conscience chases us. The enemy chases us. God's justice will chase us if we're not right with him. And he's extinguished, not in the Red Sea, but in the ocean of his love. Not the flames of Pharaoh's armies, the flames of judgment, the flames of hell itself. That we might pass through death and enter eternal life. These are wonderful things. Wonderful things. Baptism, when we get baptized, you know, this, we enter into that water. It's a symbol. 
of what we are saved from. You know, that we are passing through death with Christ. We are saved from something. But God wants us to know that is not the whole picture. We are also saved for something. We also say for something. It says in the Bible, God is at the right time. God uh, saved us. He washed us with the water of regeneration. He's poured out his spirit on us to make for himself a people that is zealous for good works. We're saved for something. He, and this picture that I've asked you to hold in your mind from the beginning, this, the first picture is this picture through the sea. The second picture, this picture of a stream in the desert making a way through an impassable desert. This negative That's the picture God wants to to, to give to you afresh this morning through his word. He wants you to be a stream in the desert, bringing life to the world. Bringing his salvation to those who don't know Jesus. Transforming the world with his life-giving power. Jesus did that, didn't he? He didn't just go through death for us. He became, for us, just to save us, he became, uh, he didn't just pass through the the Red Sea of death, he became a life-giving spirit, Paul tells us. And he is, uh, what the the prophets talk about, the temple, with the river of life coming out there and bringing water, uh, to life-giving water to the world. A, A river that gets wider and deeper the further it gets away from the temple, bringing more and more life. The birds are there, the trees are on its shores. This He is the river that's spoken about in Revelation, flowing out the city of God, bringing healing to the nations, bringing life to, to all who would recognize him. But Jesus takes that imagery of the temple and he applies it. He doesn't just say that to me. He applies it to you too. He takes that image of the river flowing out, bringing life to the world. He says, that's you. He says in John, rivers of living water will flow from within him. As is written in scripture, he says, rivers of flowing water will flow from within him. Talking about the Holy Spirit, whom those who are to believe in him were to receive. You know what? Where does it say in scripture that that rivers of living, in the Old Testament, where does it say that rivers of living water will flow from you? Do you know where? Nowhere. (laughs) It says that about the Messiah. It says that about the temple. But Jesus takes these words and he says, that's for you, you are to be a river of living water. You are to pour out your life. You are to bring life to the world around you. God wants us to be that living water. You know, that's true for us as a church. I'm Mostly, I feel God wants to bring this message to you as individuals this morning. To look at your life in that way of having passed through the Red Sea, becoming a stream in the desert. But you know, as a church, that, that picture of the temple, the picture of the new Jerusalem with the river flowing out of it is a picture of the church. That's, that's what we're meant to be to the community around us. We are not meant to be just self-regarding, not just, not meant to be inwardly turned, not just meant to be here, you know, sitting here thanking God for his salvation, but we're meant to be overflowing with his love, bringing transformation to the world around us in such a way that when people see our lives, they can follow that river to its source, which is what? It's the throne of throne of Jesus, isn't it? In our witness, in, in the way we affect the world around us, this place should be like the source of the river. People should come in, not because they just wandered past, not just because the fancy took them, but because they see your life. They see the way this church loves people and they follow it and they go, God is really here. 
and they come and they kneel and give their lives to Christ. That's the picture God wants for us. But God wants you to understand. He doesn't just want to save you from judgment, but he wants to save you for giving life to others. Now, this is the important thing. Unless you grasp this with all your heart, unless you acknowledge this and submit to God's will in your life, your life as a Christian is not going to make an awful lot of sense. It's just not. That's why God is saying to the people, through Isaiah, he's saying to them, to Judah, forget the former things. He's not literally saying forget them. Like, you know, never, no, just don't talk about the Red Sea. I've had enough. No. He loves that story. He's not saying forget it. But he's saying, think about what's going to happen to you in a new way. I'm not just going to save you out of Babylon and make things the way they were. I'm doing something new for you. I'm going to save through you. I'm going to save through you. And if you're to Israel, without that understanding, their life with God was very confusing. Why the tests in the wilderness? Why the battles with the surrounding nations? Why the, the uh, holiness laws? Why not just be like everyone else? Why not have kings like everyone else? Why not have laws like everyone else? Why not just be, be those things? Why the exile? Why would God bring those things? Why even what's, what the uh, Jewish people have experienced since Christ? Why those things? Why having made a way through death, does he, does he ask them to go through death again and again and again? So that they could bring life to the nations. That was why. That was why. It's that negative of the water. It's that opposite of going through the Red Sea. And the same goes for us. Unless you understand that God wants to bless people through you. And not just doing nice things for them. But to bring the water of life through you. To bring salvation to them. To bring the power of heaven into their lives. To bring the the love of God poured out through the Holy Spirit into people's lives. Unless you understand that God wants to make you a stream in the desert. Your life will be confusing. It won't make sense. So, you know, it says in the Bible, he, he wants us to be living sacrifices. What do you think that means? Jesus says, if anyone, if not, if a person doesn't hate his life, if he's not willing to, to lay down his life, we can't follow him. The writer of the Hebrew says, we have to follow him out of the camp into disgrace. What do you think that means? But the, to an extent, the life that God pours out through Christ, he wants to pour out through you to the world around you. So this is what we can say. He, he made a way through death. So you could give your life. He saved you from the enemy so you could love your enemies and save them. He brought us through the waters of death so we could lay down our lives and be streams in the desert. Where does this truth hit home in our lives? You understand what I'm saying so far? You follow what God's word is revealing to you? Where does this truth touch home for us? Well, if we just think God has saved us for ourselves, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm a Christian and life's going to be easy, your Christian life will not make an awful lot of sense to you. If he's just interested in making you comfortable and safe, then 
you're going to be very, very puzzled, honestly. But if you grasp this, it's going to make sense. I, I was talking on Tuesday. I told some of you this story about our, uh, one of our students, Shamnad, in India, who got saved from a Muslim family, got saved. And what's the first thing that happened to him? He got locked in a room by his family for 30 days with no food. So God saved him, and then everything was hunky-dory. <laughs> no. No. And then when that didn't work, when he wouldn't renounce his faith, what did, he, what did they do? They said, if we, they disowned him. They disinherited him. They kicked him out, and they said, if we ever see you again, we will kill you. Why? Does God allow that? Why can't he just save him, like, save him and then like, protect him from his family and give him money and security and food? Why can't he do all those things? Because God's purpose through Shamnad, a young Christian as he is, but he's beginning to grasp it already, is that his love is going to not just save him from hell and death and judgment, but he's going to save people through him. Same for you. So, what are the puzzles we face in the Christian life? What are the, the, the difficulties we face? What are the common things that, uh, that make us think, what is God doing? When sin remains, we ask him, don't we, God, why? Why can't you just save me completely? When temptation comes, you have to wrestle with those things and think things through and ask God, you know, what's the right way to battle this? Why, why, does those, why do those things happen? When difficult choices come, ethical choices that require, you know, costly, Giving of ourselves, of time, of money, of hospitality, of whole periods of our life, years, decades of our life, where we have to do the right, the right thing. And it's really hard. Why, why can't God just make those things easy? Why, we, why do we go through trials? Why do we go through illnesses? Why do we go through these, all these different things? Why do we go through periods of doubt? Why this constant stretching, refining? Why? Why? God isn't just, he's not weak, that's for sure, is he? It's not that he can't do it, but he can't just make our lives comfortable if he wants to. You know, it's not even that he's just making us holy. Often we look at suffering in that way. We look at trials and difficulties. God is purifying us. That's just half the story. God is making us streams in the desert. He's taking us through things so that we can bring life to others. Think of the the weight of that as a prophecy to Israel. I'm going to take you out of Jerusalem, all the destruction, into exile. All that's familiar, gone. Families destroyed. Temple destroyed. But I'm going to bless people through you. Think of the deep breath. Think of the faith necessary to accept that word. But that's what God is asking from us. He makes us holy for special purposes, it says in 2 Timothy, that we might be useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. He takes us through the thing, those things, so not just so that we can be holy, but so that we can love like Christ. So what circumstances are you in? What things are you going through? And how are you thinking about those things? You know, the writer to the Hebrews says, when the Israelites were in the desert and God tested them, he says this, the, the, the word did not profit them, 
not being mixed with faith, he said. When they came to uh, the promised land the first time and they, uh, they sent their scouts and they, they gathered those beautiful bunches of grapes from the valley of es- Eshol and they said how amazing it was and they said how rich the land was. But the, the, scout, the scouts also came back and said, the people in the land are really big and scary. There's no way we can take this land. That was their report. That God had delivered them all this way and now they faced with this incredible challenge and their faith failed them. But it's the same for us, isn't it? What challenge are you facing? God has brought you all this way. And now there's a challenge in front of you that seems impossible. Is God going to fail you now? Or are you going to meet his word with faith? That's what he's asking you. So whatever situation you're facing at the moment, if it's a challenging situation, let me just encourage you to pray this prayer. Not just, oh God, deliver me. That's just step one. Not just God deliver me through this situation. Whatever challenge you're facing, not just God sanctify me, make me more holy through this situation. That's just step two. But pray this prayer. God, show me how to love through this situation. Through, uh, show me how to, to love through what's happening. Show me how to reveal your glory, to proclaim your praises to people who don't know you. To lead people to the beauty of Christ. That's what he's saying. So if you're struggling, if you're facing trials, God's comfort is that. There's invitation to us today. There's, there's more. More than just that response that God calls from us. He wants us to seek out the fullness of what it means to lay down our lives for the sake of others. Paul puts it in uh, Philippians 3 verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and and the, uh, the sharing of his sufferings. Can you imagine being in that position? I want to know the sharing of his sufferings. I want to. I I find that a challenge. I'm kind of happy, like, okay, God, I think I'm getting to grips with this. The trials you take me through are for my good, and you want to bless people through them. Okay, whatever you send my way, I'll, I'll try with faith to accept those things. That's probably where I'm at right now, at least in terms of intentions, if not achievement. I don't know about you guys. But am I in that point where I could say with Paul, I want to send it my way. <laughs> Let me seek out opportunities to suffer for the sake of others. See, Paul isn't saying, oh Lord, I want to make my life hard. Send me terrible things. Purify me from sin. He's saying, I want to lay down my life. I want to pour out my life for others. I want to be a stream in the desert. I want to love like Jesus. I want in obedience to the Father. Freely like a son. I want to choose those things for the sake of others. I want to know the love of Christ. To share in his sufferings. Gladly, not passively receive them, but gladly seek them out. It's not some self-flagellation. It's not some masochistic instinct. He wants to know the full freedom of the sons of God to choose to do what is painful for the sake of others. I think it goes right to the heart of our experience of, the, of what it means to be human and made in the image of God. That again and again, 
countless times a day, in small ways, we have a choice to sacrifice ourselves or not. The really small things. To give a warm smile to someone when you're not really feeling like doing it. (laughs) To, To make a cup of tea when you don't really want to. Maybe just me. (laughs) To give a kind word when it's not strictly necessary. You know, there is this line, but actually it's there, isn't it? Don't you recognize it in your own life? The way we speak to someone, the way we speak to a parent or a friend or someone at church, the way you look at someone. That actually, every time we make that choice, there is a laying down of ourselves, a sacrifice, no matter how small, where we choose to bring life or we withhold. And we, we don't bring life. And God wants to put his finger on those things and say, what type of people are you going to be? There are big things. You know, maybe God calls us to serve in painful and long-lasting ways with family, with the poor, in some particular vocation, in some job, where we take a financial hit because we know God has called us to that work. With family. Giving our time, giving uh, of unnatural gifts, going on mission, going to dangerous situations where we have to say that big, okay, I'm gonna lay, I'm really gonna do this. I'm gonna lay down my life for Christ. In, in family, in the way we treat one another, and whether we choose to, to, uh, give of ourselves freely to our spouses, really give of ourselves or withhold. Whether we give ourselves to our children or withhold, whether we give ourselves to our parents, honoring them and serving them, or whether we withhold them. Whether we take the, the leap to have children or to have more children. You know, God calls us in all these ways to sacrifice, to choose what is hard, to go after what Christ has given us. Paul writes in Romans 8, we are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering. That's what God calls us to. Because that is what eternal life is. That's what it means to have streams of living water. That's what it means to have streams of living water. One uh, hymn writer puts it like this. He says, "Take up uh, Jesus said, take up the cross. And the hymn writer says this, To them the cross, with all its shame, with all its grace is given. Their name an everlasting name, their joy the joy of heaven. They suffer with their Lord below, they reign with him above. Their profit and their joy to know the mystery of his love. That's what God has in store for us. Also, let me just ask a simple question. Where is that opportunity to pour out your life now? In some small way or big way? What has God had his finger on? Big or small way, you've got to make that little sacrifice to to self in order to give life. Or maybe there's that big turning of direction. That big change in your life where God is saying, yes, this is going to hurt but for the sake of others. Do it, and you'll have my joy. And this is God's promise. As we pour out, he fills us. Living water. As we die, we live. As the stream flows through the desert, its course deepens, and it widens, and it quickens, and love flows through us, and we become heirs, co-heirs with Christ, in knowing God as sons. And little by little, we take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. Amen. Let's pray.